Uh, if you take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of uh, Matthew again, Matthew chapter 1, and uh, we're uh, looking at our last time uh, at this passage of Scripture, and uh, looking at particularly a, 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 a name and then a phrase. And so uh, if you have your Bibles open, it's uh, chapter, eight, or chapter 1, verse 18 uh, to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in dreams, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Our focus this morning is really on one name. Um, Matthew uses a couple names in this text, but one name. And names do matter. Names imply a lot about us. They tell or they say a lot about us. I was thinking of some names that um, may have some meaning to you and identify certain people. I was thinking of Gary Bettman. And for those of you who are hockey fans, you would know his name quite well. Um, some of you come from a generation when I would say the word Frank Sinatra. It's a name that brings all kinds of memories and um, songs to your head. Uh, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, immediately that just identifies who we're talking about and fills your mind with all kinds of memories and all kinds of reflections. Jonathan Edwards. For those of you who know um, Christian history, it's a beautiful name. Uh, Susanna Wesley. For those of you who know Christian history, it's a beautiful name. Names bring meaning. They bring um, life to, to a certain person. And as we think about this text in Matthew, there were two names that Matthew gives for Jesus. One will have only have one uh, time to consider one this morning. The first one is what we'll spend on is Jesus. And he says there that it means he will save his people from their sins. The second name is Emmanuel, which it would have been great to spend some time in that one as well, but maybe next year. It is God with us. When we understand those definitions to those names, it fills them with so much more meaning. What's in a name, Jesus? I don't think many of us, in fact, I doubt any of us, have ever received their name through an angel speaking to our parents. Uh, we might have wished that that were the case, um, but... Uh, seems that only Joseph is the one that I knew that had an angel come to him and give him the name of his child. It says there in verse 21 that the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and said to him, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And if you underline in your Bibles, this is certainly something to underline. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. 
I suspect that uh, this was a real help for Joseph. If you've been following the story and know much about the story, um, uh, Joseph was in a bit of a tizzy. And names really mattered, particularly in those days. They, they, they had meaning that names don't necessarily have today. But as Joseph was considering the circumstances that he found himself in, I doubt naming the child was high on his priority list. In fact, most of his consideration had been on how he could distance himself from his betrothed wife and wife, and then by association from the child that she was also bearing. The name, the act of naming, as I said, mattered a lot. And for Joseph, I'm sure that he might have at least reflected on these sorts of things. The moment that he named the child would be the moment that he took responsibility for the child. The moment that he named that child was the moment that he became or that that child became his legal descendant. The moment that he named that child would be the moment when he would say to everyone else around him, this child is mine. And he would be taking ownership for and responsibility over that son. This was a huge thing for Joseph. And I'm sure the angel's appearance to him was a big help for him. As she said to him, Joseph, you are to name him Jesus. It was an act of grace. In fact, it's the prophet Isaiah who says, But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. And so as Joseph received this name from the angel, it was the angel's gift of grace to take away his responsibility of taking that child on as his own. But the name Jesus in and of itself was really not an unusual name. In fact, it was a name that was probably like the most popular names of the last hundred years, which I happened to Google for North America. And the, the most uh, popular name uh, in North America for the last hundred years for guys has been James. And the most popular name for women has been Mary. And uh, so Jesus was not unlike James or Mary. It was a very, very common name in those days. It's a Greek name from the Old Testament name, Joshua. Which, as I said, was one of the most common names in the first century. In the New Testament, there are four other Jesuses mentioned in addition to the Joshua of the Old Testament that most of us are familiar with. And in fact, in the first century, uh, in the high priesthood, there were four priests, high priests, who were named Joshua. Because it was such a common name, when Matthew introduces us to Jesus the first time at the very beginning of the book, he says this was Jesus from Nazareth, so that he could be distinguished from all the other people named Jesus. But why Jesus? Why did he get this name Jesus? And why the connection with Joshua? Well, Joshua is a name which means the Lord is salvation. It's a name which means Yahweh is salvation, or in a very short form, Jehovah saves. And so by calling their son Jesus, they are naming him Jehovah saves. This was a time of great turmoil for the Romans. It wasn't a happy time for them, because once again, they were under the control of another nation. They were oppressed by the Romans, and they hated it. And they longed for a savior. They longed for somebody that would come along and free them from the oppression of the Romans. And so they were politically oppressed. They were under the military oppression of the Romans. 
And so they were hoping that maybe, just maybe, their son would be the Joshua. Their son would be the savior that would deliver them from their political turmoil or from their, the, the, the military turmoil of the Romans. And so they would name their children Joshua in the hopes that that would be the one. I think not everyone might have been so hopeful. It was just a popular name. And some might have liked the association with the name. They might have liked uh, all the stuff that came along with the name. And that's why sometimes we name our children after a grandfather or after an uncle or after an aunt or someone that we really liked. And we name them that way so that it is a, a way of honoring that person or of honoring that name. They might have done this for the name Joshua. If you think in the Old Testament, there are two Joshuas that jump to my attention. Um, there's the Joshua that we know was the servant of Moses who led the people out of, um, or who led them from the plains of Moab to take Canaan. He was a mighty warrior. He was the one who defeated all the peoples of the land of Canaan and gave the people of Israel their land. Who wouldn't want to name their child after somebody like that? And so many would have named their son Joshua because they liked the association with Joshua, the servant of Moses. But there's another Joshua in the Old Testament, which is a little less common to us, and it's Joshua the high priest. And you can find this Joshua referred to in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, but most significantly you find him referred to in the book of Zechariah, and particularly Zechariah chapter 3. And this was a Joshua high priest who, who I do identify with from time to time, Because as Joshua the high priest was ministering to the Lord, it says, as he was ministering to the Lord, Satan stood beside him on his right hand to accuse him. I don't know how many times you have been in prayer, and as you've been praying, you've had the evil one whispering in your ear, what are you praying for? God won't listen to you. Look at what you've done this past week. Just stop it. You'd be surprised how many times on a Sunday I am up speaking before you and on my right hand, the evil one whispers in my ear all manner of stuff. That's just what he does. He's the accuser of the brethren. And so I like to identify with Joshua the high priest in times like that. But there was a great desire and there's a realization that one day the priesthood would be fully established and finally established once again in Israel. And in fact, there would be one priest in whom in a single day would cleanse the temple and would, 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 would cleanse the sin of all the people. And so there was great hope that, that, that this priesthood would finally arise. And so some people would name their kids Joshua because they wanted him to be in the line of this high priest. So this name matters. There's associations with such a name. The name of Jesus then was filled with great hope and was filled with lots of history. I think if you fast forward to today, not unlike the the Jewish people under Roman oppression, we are looking for saviors, all kinds of saviors, just as they were. There are many people that are looking for an economic savior right now. You you probably have tired of uh, hearing the news, and I can't watch CNN anymore because it seems like every third word is fiscal cliff, fiscal cliff this, fiscal cliff that. But in the end of the day, what they are looking for is an economic savior. They're looking for the president or for the leader of the house or somebody to come up with a plan that will deliver them from the economic woes that they find themselves in. Somebody that will give them everything they want without increasing their their taxes and without um, taking away any of the spending. Good luck. But they're wanting an economic savior. 
There are also, though, groups of people all around the world, and we're fortunate in Canada that it's not so serious for us, but there are people that are looking for political saviors still. They live under great tyranny and incredible oppression. And they are longing for some man or some woman to rise up and to give them freedom from the oppression that they are under. I would say certainly most of the people in Syria today are longing for a political individual to rise up and to give them freedom from the weight that they are under. And so around the world, we find those that are hoping that somebody will come to power. Somebody will come to authority that will lead in a way that gives us freedom from bondage and oppression. That will end social oppression and racial oppression. We want somebody to give us rest. And so everybody can identify an area in which we need a savior. But the angel of the Lord was very specific when they came to, when he came to Joseph in a dream. He said, this Savior would be identified this way. You shall call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And I think at this point, some of the more careful biblical thinkers of that day and some of those, those, those more closely who followed God would have gone back to various passages in Scripture in their mind. And some of them might have jumped back to Isaiah 53. And they might have thought, is this the one on whom God is going to lay the iniquity of all of us? Is this the one who has been born to to bear the transgressions of many? I think some of those might have gone to Psalm 130. Some who had been hoping for great spiritual deliverance. And they, they might have silently rehearsed this psalm in their heart and in their mind. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your servant be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who would stand? But with you there is forgiveness and that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Yes, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him there is plentiful redemption. And then verse 8. And he will redeem Israel from all of her sins. I think they would have gone back to that prophetic word of the psalmist and said, Jesus, he is the one that will redeem us from all of our sins. And notice, too, what it says that they need to be saved from. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, we all are aware of the need for an economic savior. We're all aware of a need for a political savior. Some of us are looking for a health savior. But how many of us look in our hearts and say, I need a moral savior. I need a spiritual savior. I need one who will save me from that which plagues me most and that which is of the most danger to me, my sin. There's a trouble though, loved ones. Is people do not see their need for a moral savior. People do not understand the incredible oppression they are under Because of sin. Partly because we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. And so if we're dead to something, how will we ever be aware of it in our lives? I think also, though, partly is because we're rebels. We are born rebellious. 
we are born with a dislike for authority. And that is primarily seen in our disregard for God. We don't want God to rule over us. We don't want God to tell us what to do. And so we look for any manner of way of saying, I don't need to, I don't need to do what God wants me to do. And so we set aside our sin and how it offends God. But loved ones, and this is so important that we grasp this. The root of every single problem that we face individually and as a culture and as a world goes back to sin. Sin is at the root of every single problem that mankind faces. And you cannot understand sin until you understand Genesis chapter 3. And I would encourage you this week to maybe go back and read Genesis chapter 3. If you're one that likes to listen to sermons on the, the internet or read them, I would encourage you to go and read and listen to a sermon or read it by John MacArthur on Genesis chapter 3 entitled, What is Sin? It's a great message, but in there he talks about the fact how he says, or he thinks that chapter 3 of Genesis is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. And that if you understand Genesis chapter 3, you will understand the rest of the Bible. If you don't understand Genesis 3, you will get the rest of the Bible all muddled up. He goes on to say that absolutely everything about our universe and about life in the universe, and about all of us who live in it, is explained in Genesis chapter 3. It explains why we are the way we are. It explains why we do the things we do. It explains what God is up to in history. It explains what he's doing in terms of salvation. He goes on and he says, Genesis chapter 3 explains the human dilemma. All the problems in the universe have their origin in the events of this historic account. And those words, historic, matter. Because there are many people today who are trying to undermine the historicity of Genesis. And they're saying it is not history. It is anything but history. But if you undermine the historicity of Genesis chapter 1 to 11, the rest of the Bible falls apart. And it is no different with Genesis chapter 3. So he says all the problems of the universe have their origin in events of this historic account. Physical problems, spiritual problems, moral problems, social problems, economic problems, political problems. All the problems in the universe go back to the events described in that historic account. If that is true, loved ones, is not Jesus more important than ever? Because he will save us from our sins. See, Genesis chapter 3 is about the entrance of sin into our world. And then it's about the destruction that sin has brought to our lives. The oppression that it's brought to our lives. And the ultimate outcome that it's brought to all of us, which is death. Sin is the plague of mankind. As the old Puritans used to say, it's the evil of evils. It, Genesis chapter 3 explains how in the first chapter, two, chapters 1 and 2, God says everything was very, very good. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3 and you find nothing but evil full on. As we know, the ultimate impact of sin is therefore a sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because of they all sinned. You know the scriptures well. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, death is our ultimate captor. 
It's our most certain troubler. Every single one of it is under its power or was under its power. What we need, loved ones, is to be delivered from its power. What we need is to be freed from our sins, which have caused death to have power over us. And so again, we understand this name of Jesus is so critical because he will save us from our sins. He really is all that his name implies. He is light to our darkness. He is life from our death. He is peace in our chaos. He is freedom from our slavery. Loved ones, it is spiritual deliverance that we need first and foremost in our lives. In the New Testament, there are so many expressions as people come to Christ and they consider Christ and they exclaim things like, this is the Savior of the world. That He is the one who has brought redemption to all mankind. Titus has it this way, when he, when the goodness and love of, for man appeared from God our Savior, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration by renewal of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we become heirs of the hope of eternal life. See, everywhere in the New Testament we find that That is what Jesus has come to do. Not only be the Savior of the world, but to deliver us from our sins. He died for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. He is our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He has suffered for our sins. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. We can't separate the manger from the cross. We can't separate the child from the king. Because Jesus was born to die. In his death, the wages of our sin is paid. In his life, our need for righteousness is accomplished. In his resurrection, we see that God accepted his self-sacrifice as payment for our sins so that all who put their faith and trust in Christ may come to have life and life everlasting. Think about this phrase just for a moment. It's such an important one. He will save his people from their sins. He. In the Greek language, that's in the emphatic position. It's a way of saying he and he alone. Loved ones, there is no other delivery or deliverer from our sins. There is no other hope of salvation but Jesus Christ. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. We can't inherit it. We can't work for it. It comes to us solely and completely in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. He and He alone will save us from our sins. And then there's the next word, will. I love that word because there is so much um, uh, assurance in it. There is so much hope in it. There's no wavering in it. That it's a promise, so to speak. It's a certainty that he will accomplish what God has sent him to accomplish. Loved ones, there is no doubt that if you put your faith and confidence in Jesus Christ today, you will find freedom from your sins. You will find the power of death broken in your life. And you will have everlasting life save we we know that word and we know that word well it can refer to troubles it can refer to to all kinds of trials but here it's specifically moral salvation or spiritual salvation 
He will deliver us from the bondage of our sins. His people. It's a great phrase. It's one that certainly automatically goes to Jews first because they are the sons of David. But then it extends to all of us who are sons of Abraham. He will save his people. He will save all who put their faith and trust in him from I love that word, from. It, it implies not only that we are saved from something, but we're saved to something. We are saved from sin. We are saved from death. We are saved from it to life. We are saved to light. For God so loved the world that he gave what? His one and only son that who would ever believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We are saved from perishing to everlasting life. From their sins. I wish we could spend so much more time even on this word. And and maybe even spend two or three weeks just looking at this. Because I think it matters. But most of us here or many of us here. This word makes sense to us. At least we have some understanding of what sin means. And so we have some understanding of the need for a saviour. We know that it's rebellion against God. We know that, that God has given us these ten commands which, which summarize His desire for us. And we know when we lie, it offends God. We know when we steal, it offends God. We know when we covet, it offends God. We know that when we commit adultery, it offends God. We know that when we worship money, it offends God. We have this sensibility. We've been raised with it. We've been born around it. We've grown up in it. We know that sin is not just acts, but it's it's in our minds as well. That, that, that if you hate somebody, you're guilty of murder. That if you lust after somebody, you're guilty of adultery. It's not just the act, it's the thought. We know all of that kind of stuff. We know that sin is not just acts, but it's it's thought and it's motives. We know that it's the disposition of our heart. We know that there's a bent in our natures. We know that we know what sin is. But loved ones... You and I are increasingly in a minority. In the last 45 or 50 years, our culture, particularly North American culture, has done everything in its power to erase sin from the vocabulary and the awareness of men and women, boys and girls. They have done it through through changing the words that normally we associate with sin to words that are that nullify its consequence. They have done it in taking away um, feelings like guilt and shame and saying, no, you shouldn't feel guilty. No, you shouldn't feel shame. They're illegitimate emotions and feelings. And so they try and erase the consequences of sin that we feel in our life so that there's a whole generation now that is growing up with absolutely no knowledge of sin, with no awareness of guilt guilt and shame in their life. And so words like this mean almost nothing to them. And loved ones, when you remove sin from its from our vocabulary, what do you what's the standard any longer? There is no standard. It's what everybody wants to be right and what everybody wants to be wrong. Cultural determines it. You determine it, but there's no objective standard. And if there is no sin, how does one ever repent? How does one ever make their way back to God? And so our world has absolutely erased sin from our collective consciousness. And so when you come to somebody and you say to them, you know, Jesus, he will save you from your sins. They would say, well, based on what? Based on what am I a sinner? And we might reply to them, well, based on the standard of the Bible. To which they would say, well, the Bible's not my standard. 
And loved ones, that's why it's even more important than for us to bring the word of God back into our culture, to bring it back into conversations around our tables, to bring it back into conversations with our neighbors, because that's the only way that they will hear the standard of God. We need to challenge people who don't have any standard, who don't have any knowledge of sin. Read the Bible. Just read it and see if it does anything to you, because I believe the word of God is life. I believe that the word of God will reveal sin to people who have no knowledge of sin. You see, sin is not determined by a, by certainly uh, 50% of votes or by referendum or by popular opinion. We see the disaster when we allow people to m- vote on moral issues. The only standard is the word of God. And regardless of what people say, sin is breaking the law of God. Sin is violating the moral, moral character of God. So how do you tell a society who knows nothing about sin of a Savior? How do you tell them that Jesus matters to them? By the word of God. Do not be ashamed of the word of God. Do not be afraid of the word of God. Do not be tricked into thinking that we need to pull the word of God out of our business places, out of our families, out of our dinner tables, out of our discussions, out of our backyard conversations with our neighbors. It is the word of God that brings about an awareness of our sin. And it is the word of God that points us to Jesus, our Savior. It was Charles or um, William Barclay who said that Jesus was not so much the man born to be king as the man born to be savior. Jesus, he really is all his name implies. There's tremendous grace. Christmas is about grace in many ways. God could have left us alone. God could have said, you know what? You guys have blown it. I'm done with you. But in his grace and in his mercy, he sent his son Jesus so that we might be freed from our bondage, that we might have light shone into our darkness. God has made this stunning deliverance available to anyone who would put their faith and trust in the name of Jesus. And if we believe in the name of Jesus, we will be saved. A whole group of people were convicted by the word of God and they came to Peter and they said, Peter, Peter, what must we do to be saved? His response was simple. Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. In another place in the book of Acts, it says that there is salvation in no one else for there is no name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved cannot save yourself. You will not find salvation in a political deliverer. You will not find salvation in any other individual or any other God if there is any other God. You will find salvation in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. There's a song I want us to sing and Mike is going to come and play it and the words are going to be up on the screen. It's a simple song. We've sung it before, but it's a song that reminds us of the name of Jesus. And I just want this name to be embedded in your hearts and minds as you leave here in a few moments. The name of Jesus. 
He really is all his name implies. He is the Savior of the world. He is the one in whom we find salvation for our sins. 